0: to talk about evangelism in relationship to community and the gospel and the world and everything on one Sunday. So um, I'm going to say sort of a lot of different things over the course of the next number of minutes. And so this may seem like a little bit of a drink from fire hydrant, but um, I do think it's clear. So let's just see what happens. Okay? You can just pray. Just pray right now that if this would all work out because this is an important important gig what I want to do over the course of the next few minutes is I want to ask and answer these seven questions what is evangelism? Why do we feel shameful and, humiliate and humiliated sometimes? And what's to be done about it when we attempt it or think about it? Is evangelism or living as a witnessing person for everyone? What is the most pervasive way to live evangelistically? What does an authentic, authentically persuasive evangelistic community look like? How does this change the way we see our mission? And how is this or is this good news for me? Sounds easy enough, doesn't it? So... First, um, what is evangelism? Evangelism, see, uh, there are certain countries in the world that have anti-proselytization laws, right? And people say, you, say, you know, you shouldn't be pro- They don't usually say you shouldn't do evangelism. say you shouldn't be proselytizing. Um, which is, it's interesting because they're built, those are built on two totally different Greek words. Um, the word for becoming a proselyte of um, comes from the Greek word akalutheo, which we get acolyte. In the, in the Catholic church if you're an accolade like an altar boy And the idea is, is that person is a, fo- is a follower of In, in terms of they, they become part of that group Evangelism means a totally different thing Now when people believe in Jesus They become followers of Jesus And they accolothe Jesus That's true But the word evangelism doesn't mean that The word evangelism means good news You angelizo, good angel, good messenger So to evangelize is to good news people It's basically let other people in on profoundly good news That's what it is Now, will they become followers? Yes Will they become disciples? Yes Um, But if somebody says um, you cannot be proselytizing You're like, listen, I just tell them the good news and they do what they want I'm not making anybody do anything And here's the reason The crux of the, the difference is Is because when people think of proselytization They think of pressure they think of coercion they think if people are in one social group and they move to another social group why would they do that they wouldn't do that unless you're pressuring them unless you were coercing them unless you're you, were, you were threatening them unless you're using people wouldn't just buy into your silly religion instead of their silly religion just because you said something That that kind of thing doesn't happen People move like that when there's money to be gained or lost Or they can get something So so they accuse missionaries of buying converts Which, you know, there were some missionary tactics that could be accused of that Over the last 300 years But there's some places they'll accuse all missionaries of that that because we have a Christian school in a place in India, we're buying converts because we're giving people an education but making them become Christian if they do. A children's home in downtown Mumbai. We save a TB ridden child off the street and we bring them into a Christian home and the government of India says, Now you got to teach that child Hinduism because that's, that's where that child came from. We said, No, we're not. And they threatened to close us down because we're proselytizing even though that kid was going to be treated like garbage and left to die on the street. But even if you want to save her, you should make her a good Hindu Because otherwise you're proselytizing You're pressuring her That home you're giving her That's just because you want to make another Christian You're hoping she'll turn into another missionary That's what you really want And because of that attitude, both abroad and at home um, There is shame associated with evangelization With good-newsing people Because it's associated with proselytization Proselytization, which... Is assumed is pressure, coercion, force. When um, Adam Darbone, who is preaching at Good Hope, at New Hope Evangelical Free Church, which is where Bill Lurch is, Bill Lurch is taking a vacation. Adam's preaching for him. When he told some friends in San Francisco he was going to become a pastor, one of his friends said, "That's cool, that's cool, man, but don't be don't be one of those pastors that tells people they have to become Christians." <laughs> Yeah, no wonder people don't think pastors do anything um, <clears throat> Don't, you know, don't be one of those pastors that tries to convert people um, And, and there's, this, there's this persuasive, this, this fairly persuasive because it's, because it's actually coercive and pressurizing on all of us That, you know, you really shouldn't do that It is, it is inhumane and arrogant You've heard this before, right? You live in Madison, don't you? Yeah, that it's just wrong to do that Now here's the thing, you've you got to understand this, okay um, In order to deal with, now I'll talk about the humiliation of sharing the gospel in a minute But to deal with the shame of the gospel, you've got to fix your brain on this one you, it's, not, it's not a heart issue, it's a brain issue You're not thinking, if you feel pushed by that, you're not thinking through it right Now think about this, if somebody says you shouldn't try to convert people What are they doing? They're trying to convert you to the view that you shouldn't convert people So all you have to do is say, whoa, 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 what are you doing? What are you doing right there? And here's the thing, most people have just heard that statement And they just, it sounds credible to them They haven't thought through it They don't go around every statement they hear Wondering whether or not it's self-referentially consistent Do you do that? No, we don't But people hear it, they go, oh yeah, that's true And then they keep repeating it to others and people don't think through, so you, you can't be arrogant about that. But you've got to fix it in your own head, and, and you have to find a humble way to show other people that every—listen, everybody is advocating for their worldview. Everybody sees the world a certain way, and everybody is both implicitly and explicitly advocating for that view of the world. Period. Period. Even if their view is the, of the world is, you shouldn't advocate for your view of the world— that is a view of the world, and that is advocacy for it. And we just have to be smarter than that. We just have to be more real, reason- we gotta think it through. The reality is, is that everybody sees the world in a certain way, and everybody believes that if you believe what they believe, the whole world would be a better place. And they're going to encourage you in many different ways to believe what they believe. That's just the way the reality is. So the question isn't, what are we asking people to believe? That's not the moral question. The moral question is, How are we asking them to believe it? Are we sharing and trying to be as persuasive as possible without pressurizing and coercing people? Or are we pressurizing and coercing people to believe something? That's the moral question. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, who does the suffering in the good newsing? It's always the Christian who does, right? When Christians go out to good news of the world, who, who gets suffered and who gets the suffering and who ends up coerced? It's the Christian. If they do it the way Jesus did it, right? That's why Christians talk about becoming martyrs, not with a sword in their hand, but with a Bible in their hand. I go and I'll go to that place and I'll preach the gospel there. And who gets killed if anybody gets killed? They might kill me, right? Because because I'm the one bringing the message. If anybody's going to suffer or be coerced under this message, it's going to be me as it's rejected, not them as they choose to do, because I'm there to persuade. I'm not there to pressurize. And if we get that straight, we can, we can try to be as persuasive as possible, be entirely moral in our advocacy for something, share the good news with other people, and be mentally immune to the shame that's, shame that's often heaped on us for sharing the good news. Now, in the area of shame, there's a lot of that because there's a sense of, I don't do this enough, I don't share the gospel, I'm terrified when I do it, it doesn't come out right, nobody ever actually responds when I, when I do the good newsing, um, <clears throat> so on and so forth. People tell me I shouldn't be doing this when I do it, and they talk to other people at the office about me and about my family. Listen, um, we—listen, f- friends— the, 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 the answer to this issue is the gospel, okay? We have to believe the gospel. We have to recognize that we follow the humiliated one. We do. We follow the humiliated one. And so you can either rejoice and be glad in that day that you are being humiliated because you follow the humiliated one. And if you're not just being a jerk... Because there's a way to to good news, people, it's being a jerk and an idiot, right? Coercion and persuasion. You know, coercion and pressurizing. But if you're persuading, you're trying to be loving, you're doing the best you can to be humble and to see that you're no better than them, you have news to tell, and hopefully they'll believe it. And if you do that and you get— Humiliation heaped on you Then rejoice What does the gospel say? Rejoice and be glad that day Because you follow the humiliated one Who was truthful with those he loved And accepted whatever suffering they heaped on him And the Bible says Look, they did that to the prophets They did that to Jesus They did that to everyone God has ever sent Listen, that's that's what love looks like You tell the truth, you act as loving as you can. Some people will respond and join the ranks of the humiliated, and other people will not. And that's just how it is. And that doesn't even make you better than them. Still, the fact that you may be the humiliated one with Jesus doesn't make you any better. But it is the gospel. And it is how we handle the fact that, listen, even when you share the gospel humbly, beautifully, well, honestly, totally with an interest to persuasion, none to coercion, you're still going to be humiliated, and that's good. The Bible doesn't say you can handle it. The Bible says rejoice and be glad in that day. And the worse it is, the more glad. Let's move on to other questions. So third, is this really for everyone? Is this for everyone? Because... Jesus sends out his disciples, right? Are his, what are, his, are his disciples just the twelve apostles? Or are they just the, the, the disciples that were there? Or is this everyone? Is this, is this a call for everybody or not? This is what it says in Luke ten one to 2. Um, After this, the Lord—that's Jesus—appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers in his harvest field. Now, listen. The prayer probably is enough, right, to answer this question. If he says to the people he's sending, he says, Listen, pray to God that he'd give you more people to send. Because if the issue is not too many workers, the issue is too much harvest and not enough workers. So therefore, do we need a lot of harvesters? The answer is, biblically, yes. But that's not it. Think about the number, 72. Where else does that show up in the Bible? 72. Why is it 72? Right? There's 12 apostles or disciples. Why? Because there's 12 tribes of Israel, right? The apostles are New Israel. Why 72? Why is this group 72? Where is 72 in the Bible? Nowhere. Is the answer. Except for there was one tribe of Israel that brought to the new temple 72 donkeys, but I don't think that that's the theological importance there. <laughs> You're all a bunch of asses. No, that's not the point. Okay? We're not supposed to evangelize as idiots, right? We're not. We're not supposed to be dumb idiots. We're supposed to be bright followers of Jesus who know the law, who know the truth. Sh- okay, so, sorry I said that word. I apologize right now before you send your emails, okay? Let's just move on. <laughs> I didn't mean donkeys. Um, the, the point is, here, here's, here's this. Genesis 10, okay? Genesis 10. What happens in Genesis 10? There is a list of names. It is called by biblical scholars the table of nations. Table of nations. I am told that if you don't have a cold and you're counting through the, the, the number of people, and you count through all the different nations, because it's all the peoples of the world. That's the whole point. That from these people came all the people in the world. There's 72 there's 72. So you see, you see the point? God is creating a new 72, a new table of nations to go to all nations. You see what he's doing? He created new Israel and the apostles. Then he, then he brings together 72, they They're new humanity, right? The apostles were new Israel. The 72 are new humanity. He brings together a new humanity to send to all humanity, to the whole—all the nations, everyone. And he says, go and pray for even more workers. You see the point? And, and who's in all nations? Well, that's kind of everybody, right? That's you and me. We have, all of us who are disciples of Jesus, we have a message to tell people publicly, urging them urgently to believe it completely. Okay, fourth is what is the most persuasive way to live? So if we're not supposed to pressurize people, we're not supposed to coerce people, we're supposed to gospel people persuasively, how do you do, what's the best way to do that, right? Um, I do not watch the show Jersey Shore, um, but here's what I understand about it. Um, if, if, you, if you want Okay, first of all There's a few people who go to our church from New Jersey And I should probably say right up front That they would want me to say That not everybody from New Jersey is like that Okay But um, th- th- it's, it's basically some kind of rough people And here's, here's one of the interesting things about the show um, What is the, the greatest insult In this community of people That you can possibly give somebody The absolute greatest I mean, if you really want to cut somebody the bone, if you want to take somebody's self-worth away, if you want to emotionally destroy them, if you want to cut them as deep as you can cut somebody, what do you call them? (laughs) Aversion. No. um, No. Fake. You're fake. Right? That's the the worst thing. It's not you're an alcoholic— Right? It's not you're abusive. It's not you're horrifyingly promiscuous and adulterous. It's not, it's not that you treat people like they're animals. It's not that you're greedy beyond imagination. It's not that you think that you're God yourself. It's none of those things. It's you're fake. Now, that really ought to tell us something about our culture. That, And, he, and here's, here's what we need to understand, and this has been going on for years. Um, there was a time— I'm told in the distant past, where people pretty much understood when something was proved and were willing to believe in it if it was proved and to, and to stake their faith on it. That is not the day we live in. We live in the day of jargon where there are no arguments and where there is so much information, nobody dreams you could actually pull the proper facts out, right? And where, therefore, what are we left with, right? Plus, you've got a hundred years of the growth of the advertisement industry in which advertisements have become more and more and more and more sophisticated. There is this sophistication arms race between becoming more sophisticated in getting people to buy stuff and people becoming more and more immune to it to the point where now there's a lot of advertisements that are intentionally self-deprecating about advertisements, right? So, like, if you look at—I don't know if you've seen those, like, Old Spice commercials with, with the, like, black guy on a horse, and, like, it keeps changing. And he's like, I smell like your man. Your man should smell— Have like-. you seen those? You should go on YouTube and watch them, because they're kind of funny. If you haven't seen them. But it's—the whole point is to make fun of cologne advertisements. Or there's a beer commercial for Dos Equis with this, like, this guy. And he's, like, this old dude, and he's all, got all these, like, women around him who have, like— Beauty pageant sashes on They're not It's not enough just to make them attractive They have to be wearing Beauty pageant sashes And there's one There's one where he's driving In a, like, a, like a dinghy Out in the ocean In like three foot seas With these And you're like Dosecki's guy How did you end up in the ocean In a dinghy With seven what, Did your yacht just sink What, what? Right And he's like And he's like, I drink—yeah. In in one sense, it's kind of—at first you're kind of like, are they really trying to sell me that this 60-year-old guy is, like, Mr. Cool? And and then you realize, no, oh, it's irony, right? Okay, the advertisers are making fun of themselves. That's funny. But it's—but what is it really trying to get at? The idea—we're trying to get at, we—what do we believe? We believe believe corporations are trying to manipulate us. They're fundamentally dishonest. They want our money. They're going to sell us crap, and they're going to charge us too much for it. So what so what do you got to say in the advertisement? You got to say, well— We're just like you. We're making fun of ourselves. Yeah, we want you you to buy our stuff. We're going to do the best we can, but it really isn't that big a deal. But it's kind of cool. You should buy it. Just trying to be self-deprecating enough to come off as authentic. Because that's what people want. That's what sells authenticity. And even the fakest people in the world— are in some deluded way at this moment in Western culture desperately seeking authenticity. And so when they look at the church, they don't, they don't care about the argument. They don't care. They, their mind has been trained for a couple of decades or however long they've been alive probably to not care if the argument is any good because arguments just manipulate people and therefore people who are all real logical, they're probably inauthentic. They want to see unarguable authenticity. And most of us want to see it in the group we're already in So we don't have to go through the massive stress of change Right now, there's over 200 different reality shows Can you believe that? Over, now, some of them are kind of funny They're like the chef, chef shows Or like the guys yelling at people And actually, I really like those Because I'm like, I can never do that at my job! <laughs> right? <clears throat> Um, but some of them are these like, you know, The Bachelor and Bachelorette And could, kind of just like ridiculous sorts of shows That try to come off as, as authentic But you know why I stopped? Lexi and I watched the first The first um, season I think we watched the first two seasons of The Bachelor You know why we stopped? It wasn't because it was a stupid show And we should never watch the first one It was Here's why The editors were manipulating me It was inauthentic, I wasn't going to watch it anymore They'd spend the whole episode trying to make me believe something And then they just change it at the end <laughs> Whereas if I was there watching the whole thing all week I would have known exactly who he was going to pick And so I'm not watching this I'm not going to be manipulated for 41 minutes So that you can dump some dumb thing on me That I would have known at the beginning episode on the 42nd minute So I'll watch 20 minutes of commercials I'm not doing it It's inauthentic (sighs) Whatever The point is is that people—listen, we live in a culture where everybody imagines themselves on a journey to see and find and be authentic. Even the most inauthentic of us, if you call us fake, we're going to have a personality crisis. Unless we know you're fake first. (laughs) So then the next question is... um, what does a perva- persuasively authentic evangelistic community look like? Okay? Because remember a little while ago, I read, I read Matthew 5, right? The Beatitudes. And you, you, can be, you could be like kind of like, Beatitudes, really? But then G- think about it. Jesus comes out of the Beatitudes into your city on a hill, your—right? And so lots of people will take the city on a hill, lamp under a bushel, that whole gig, and talk about evangelism, right? We're the church. We're supposed to be light to the world. We're blah, 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 right? And then there's a sermon series on the Beatitudes at a totally different time. But think about the Beatitudes. What are they? I mean, they are a number of selected marks of a community of people who actually believe the gospel. A Beatitude people would be a truly gospel-believing people. And remember, all the yous in Matthew 5 in this context are all plural yous. In Greek, it's a totally different—it's it's not a totally different word, but it's a different word. You always know in Greek if it's plural or singular, whereas you don't know in English because we just say you. Isn't that sophisticated, right? And in, the, in here, it's always you plural. It's you all together. It's y'all, because the, the Southerners are more advanced linguistically than us here, okay? It's y'all, or all y'all, right? And— Just think about it. Um, What what would it mean to be poor in spirit? It would would be somebody who really believes God is their strength, right? That's the gospel. God is my strength, not me. Not my plans. Not my idols, right? Later on, the Bible says those who—it says here, those who mourn will be comforted. But later on, it says, what? Rejoice with those who rejoice in Philippians. And then what does it say? mourn with those who mourn right somebody else's reason to mourn becomes your reason to mourn why can you join in with their mourning because you recognize your brother and sisterhood with them that it is a common tragedy and that God is the only comforting one if you mourn well if we mourn well it's because we know God is our comfort right what what's the difference between meekness and weakness what's the difference The difference is that the meek person does not use all the power they could take for themselves because they recognize God is their power, and God is the power, and they don't have to act like a God, whereas the weak person is just terrified. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness recognize God as their sustenance. Those who are pure in heart recognize that God is their cleanness and their focus, not their self-righteousness. Those who are peacemakers recognize that God is their advocate and avenger, not themselves. Like it says at the end of Romans 12, those who are persecuted for righteousness and rejoice in that recognize that God is their justice provider, not themselves fighting for their own rights because they will always kill someone else's rights if they don't let God interact with that. And those who are in and slandered, They recognize that they don't need the slanderer's affirmation. When someone humiliates me for doing something when I'm serving Jesus, if I'm destroyed by that, it's because I don't believe the gospel. I, because I don't, I don't really believe that God's affirmation and praise is what I need. I believe that their affirmation and praise is what I need, and that's not the gospel. The gospel is, is that I, the only who, person whose affirmation and praise I need is God's. And I, it's great to be affirmed by other people, particularly other people who love God and love me, and therefore are communicating God's affirmation sometimes, that's great. But that's not the same thing as needing their affirmation and losing my sense of self when I can't. So if we're a beatitude people and a happy people in that place, then what are we going to be? We're a city on a hill that can't be hidden. We're a shining light. We're a lamp that's not hidden under a bushel, but put up on a stand because then it gives everything light. Right? The city, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have used blue. It says a refuge, not a hideout. It's authentically bad grammar. Um, Double irony? Okay, yeah. Still fake, right? Okay. Okay. Here's the thing about a city on a hill A city on a hill is a place where you're safe But it's totally different than a hideout uh, In the life of David There were times where Saul knew exactly where David was But didn't go after him And there are other times where Saul wanted to go after David But didn't have any idea where he was That's the difference between a fortress And a hideout The church Is meant to be a fortress fortresses were built up on tall places. They were very hard to assault, and a few men could ward off many soldiers, and if you attacked them and you didn't find some sneaky way to get in, or you didn't have an inside man, you were going to lose a lot of people trying to take that place. And so when David went to Hebron or some of these other places that had strongholds, Saul just left him alone, even though he had David outmatched. But the great thing about a, about a stronghold is it was there for the surrounding countryside. People could, when when an army from a foreign land would come in, the, 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 the stronghold would open its gates and everybody would come inside. It was a place of strength, not just for itself, but for everybody who could see the city shining on the hill. They, they knew that if Babylon ever came, they had a place to go. They ran to Jerusalem. They ran to Hebron. They went to the fortified city because the, because the stronghold was for itself, but it was also for Everyone. That's why I had both walls and doors. If it wasn't for anybody, it would just have walls, not doors. That's different than a hideout. David had this cave in a place called En Gedi where there was water, and he could hide out, and it was in the middle of the desert, and it was a pain for anybody to go try and look for him there. And there were number places, times when he hid there. But he wasn't doing anybody else any good. He was just hiding. Now, here's why why I describe this. Because I think too many churches notice—know that they have to be refuges— the church. Listen, we, we a lot a lot of people in this room do get do get spiritually beat up all week. Okay, that's reality, right? It's true. We're constantly facing things that are not only not Christian, but they are set up in such a way that being a Christian doesn't even make any sense in them. Like it's not an option you can pick. It's not even on the test. And so you, it, it's just. And so it's, it's designed to put you In this really awkward position all the time And so you go around, oftentimes Interacting in the world and in the workplace Just trying to figure out how to be authentically a believer and, But yet not kind of take on too much But yet interact with people it's, it's very taxing and the church needs to be a refuge It needs to be a place where you can come And get an emotional rest, an intellectual rest You can fortify, you can, you can Get some spiritual sustenance Those things can happen to strengthen you you need, you need the strength, you need the encouragement It's not my job to just stand up here and yell at and berate the congregation Right? Um, but I really do believe that too many churches function like hideouts rather than fortresses. I really do believe that. A church is supposed to strengthen you and prepare you for life, not be your life. It's it's a place where we, we come for strength. We know it's a, st- a stronghold that we can if we need. If we're beat up bad enough and we got to run for a little bit, we can retreat to. But it's it's there for the it's there for the world. This church this church exists for those people. It, it exists for all of us. And so we have to be figure out how to be a city on a hill, not a cave in and Getty. And one of the examples of this that's the, one of the best examples is is in the book of Revelation. In chapter 21 when the heavenly city is described It's described as a city That has 216 foot thick walls But the gates never close Isn't that interesting? Because inside there's a river and there's a tree And it's for the healing of the nations And it says people will come and they will go And it says that the, he has these enormous gates And the gate, do you know, remember what the gates are? They're pearls That can be rolled That's, I thought that kind of cool But it's a city that has hugely thick walls that could never be broken through, but the gates are always open. That's what the city of God is meant to be like, a stronghold for the healing of the nations, with walls that cannot be breached, but gates that never close. That's a witnessing community. That's a loving stronghold. That is the kind of community that is persuasive. Okay, so next, how does this change how we see our mission? I want to do, I say three things fairly briefly. One is your life and our life together is therefore the primary evidence for our message. How Christianly authentic your life is individually, but even as important and maybe more important, our life together becomes the primary evidence for our message. Here's one of the funny things about authenticity. Authenticity can only be done together. Integrity can be done on its own. Whether or not you stole from your boss or from the government or from your wife's purse, um, you know that. And they might figure that out. But ultimately, integrity, the, the, the singleness of you as an integer, the, 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 the truthfulness of how you are what you are, there is one you and you are always that you, is something that you can deal with yourself in your own mind. But authenticity fundamentally relates to at least two people or more. Because you're putting something out to somebody else and that has to be experienced to judge as to whether or not that is the real you The whole point is, is there's a you that's going out And there's a you that is And that is either authentic or it isn't And it's always between at least you and the person you're projecting it to Is your image the same as you? That's the question of authenticity That's judged in community And that is always a function of community Authenticity, you cannot be done by You can't do it by yourself It's impossible You can have integrity, but you can't have authenticity Does that make sense? A little bit that's a tough distinction, isn't it? But one of the things we need to recognize then is, is that um, even though I think apologetics, that is, figuring out how to reasonably explain the Christian faith and why there are extremely good reasons for it, that's, that's still going to be important because you can't pull those wires out of people's minds so they don't care about thought. Even though I feel like our, our, our cultural fabric is doing a pretty good job of that, and I feel like we're getting dumber faster. Uh, even though that's true, there is a reasonable place in the hearts and minds of people that will cry out for something. And our ability to explain the Christian gospel to them is important. But the first thing they will hear and listen to and engage with is whether or not we, they, we really are a different sort of folks. That's, that's, that's going to be the primary evidence. And if we recognize that, and we want to be an evangelistic community, we want to be an outreaching, a gospeling community, we've got to recognize that how we treat each other, whether or not we really love each other, whether or not we actually become part of this community of people or not, matters enormously. And, and listen, this, is, this might sound a little... I don't know what this is, I'm just telling you. If you think you can do that, come into church a couple times a month... Or let me push it even further. Coming to church four times a month and just coming to worship and then going home and getting fed, coming to the stronghold and go back out, that's probably not true. Because there's no real community built. There's no fabric. There's no authentic loving. There's no—none of that stuff is really going to grow and exist and be, a, be evidence so that it can be a witness to the world. That won't happen. That's one of the reasons why small groups—we're like, listen, we've got to get small groups going. We've got to do this. We've got to figure out ways to get people together in deeper relationships because otherwise we won't be the community that is the evidence to the watching community. But the fun—you know what the fun thing about authenticity is? This is what's fun about authenticity. We don't have to do any other stuff but just be what the thing we say we want to be. I mean, think about that. If people were not interested in authenticity, we'd have to be an authentic community and something else. You know, if they were interested in like arguments and stuff like that We'd have to be an authentic community because Jesus wants us to be And we'd have to do all that other stuff too If people wanted like really like excellent flashy lights and whatever And they were interested in coolness Now they are obviously interested in coolness But not as much as they say they're interested in authenticity We'd have to be authentic because we just have to be And we'd have to do the other thing too The cool thing about people's interest in authenticity is We're supposed to be that anyway That's great Okay, sorry Um The second thing is you have to—we should start to see evangelism as a community thing, not just an individual thing. Now, I'm not saying that we don't share the gospel individual to individual. We are going to do that. And those of you who know me well know that I get really annoyed when people say, preach the gospel always and use words if necessary, because that saying makes me want to pull my ears off. Um, But there's also some truth to it. Serving others does demonstrate love— And if we love them for their sake, that would demonstrate disinterested love or God's love towards them and can help them understand God's heart for them, but they still haven't heard the gospel. That's my problem with that statement. The gospel is news. But that's—we're going to do that too, right? We're going to serve other people. We're going to try to love other people because we're supposed to be a loving community, right? But if you understand the mark of authenticity in witness, that means what are we gonna have to, we're to we going to have to do evangelism together, aren't we? We're going to have to invest in people and then invite them to experience the community and say, this is what happens when Jesus is king. This is what you're seeing right here. They go, they go what the heck are these? People just come over to your house and they, just, they like each other. Those people are totally different. That guy's a union leader. That guy's like a Republican. What the? And they're in the same... They didn't, and it's not even, there's not even a Packers game on. <laughs> and you're like, that's what happens when Jesus is king. When Jesus is king, people can have very strong convictions about things, be trying to figure out the right thing. They listen to each other, but they hold their, they hold their convictions as they, as they best understand them. And those two guys, they love each other because Jesus is king to them. And then their ideology has to be under that, and that's how it works. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's interesting. That's how—and evangelism works that way. People go, oh, this is really different. This really makes—this really affects things. This really changes things, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. Let me tell you why. Here's the news. The third thing is um, a new centrality to hospitality and other gifts. You see, if evangelism is things one person does to somebody else, it's, it's the—you know, when I was in college, I thought that in order to be evangelistically successful, you had to be a Division I college athlete at some point in your life. I mean, have you ever—I don't know if you've— but like, when I would go and like hear people tell evangelism stories, it just—there was, was this eerie reality that they all seemed to be college athletes at some point and brimming with confidence— And so they just, they'd go in a, they'd tell us, I went into that restaurant, sat down, and I ordered some beef brisket. And before that was on my plate, I'd, I'd ask the waitress if she died tonight, if she knew for sure whether or not she'd go to heaven or hell. And she broke down crying and told me about how her mama never loved her and her tears dripped down onto her many tattoos. And then, you know, we, you know, like, and I was like, I'm like, why is it always like hockey players and baseball, football? I mean, like, why is it always those guys who have stories like that? They're always like, I'm you know, I figured in order to be evangelistically successful, I should stop reading my Bible and I should get better at football. <laughs> and you know what? Confidence can be really helpful in getting over the humiliation and shame heaped on us and getting through that and sharing the gospel anyway. So I praise God for those guys that have those stories and do that stuff because I like them now. I had a little bit of problem with them early on, but now, God bless them, they're one of the group, Right? But what you'll also understand, once you see that evangelism is something we do in community with hospitality together, you begin to realize, okay, wait a second. If we're doing this in authentic community, then everything matters. The food matters. The color of the napkins matters. Whether or not the environment is comfortable matters. Whether or not people's coats are taken and brought back. Whether or not people feel like somebody cares about them and wants to hear about their day. Listening matters. All of the gifts— Immediately matter 10 times more than they did before And you don't just look to the proclaiming guy Or you don't just look to the confidence brimming guy You don't just look at those people You recognize everybody has a contribution to make in the community Everybody's investing, everybody's inviting But everybody has something to contribute Because the community is itself evangelistic It, it is itself embodying the good news Right? And that's why Jesus could say in John 17 when he said Lord, let them, Father, let them have unity with each other because then the world will know that you sent me. Right? Okay. I think that's all we have time for. So the last question. Oh my gosh, I think we're going to get through this. Seven questions. Who would have thought? How is this good news for me? There's this place right after the 72 get back and they're really stoked about what happened. This is what they say. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, that's Jesus. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, however, do not rejoice that your names, that that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Can you imagine how deflating that was? Like, they go out for like a couple of weeks and they're praying for people who've never walked and they walked. And they, they go to somebody who is so mentally deranged that people have to stay away and they pray for that person and they get better. Right? And like, stuff that they have seen Jesus do, but they've never seen happen at all. And they realize that there's some kind of authority in Jesus that isn't just Jesus, it is with the the name and work and redemption of Jesus that is now on them somehow, and they're experiencing it. And they come home, they go, go, oh my gosh, Jesus, you are not going to believe this. Like, no kidding, the demons submit—the demons submit to us in your name. And he goes, yeah, dude, like, I was there, okay? I mean, I actually saw Satan fall out of heaven. I saw that myself, so I know—I know— that the demons submit in my name. And listen, you're right about this. So, so you see how he doesn't, he doesn't just, he doesn't, he's not mean to him. He says, listen, I have given you this power. Okay, listen, it's true that in my name and in the gospel and in the power of the Holy Spirit that you are going to experience and that some of you are experiencing in part. And I believe that God is going to increase our experience of this in our ability, capacity to love others and our desire to sacrifice for his purposes. I, I believe that. I think we're going to see, we're just, but listen, he, he says, I've, and you stomp on everything Satan puts out there, all the powers of anti-redemption you will walk on. But listen, listen to me, guys. Don't be happy about that. It's cool, but do not seat your joy in it. Because there is something much greater than that, and that is that your names are written in heaven. Can you believe that? Now, I mean, think about that That is What, ha- what that happened when they were going around That is something to get excited about I mean, if, I, if somebody was like Hey, uh, I'm, I'm very ill Will you pray for me? And they came up and I prayed for them And they just got healed How would you feel? I mean, think about this like, Let's say somebody came up here They were terminal And we prayed for them And they got instantly healed Instantly And it was obvious. And everybody in this room was like, oh my gosh, that person is better. What emotion would flood you? Joy, right? You would be like, oh my gosh, Jesus is so real. And you would be transfixed by that glory. But Jesus is like, your name is written in heaven. That is more astounding, friends. It's more astounding. Listen, this—here's why this is good news. Um, it is good news because even the demons submit in Jesus' name. And the one place where he said, no kidding, my authority is on you, and I will be with you to the very end is in the context of what? Going to all nations, right? He, remember he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me— Now you go and make disciples of all nations, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. So where in our actions is Christ's presence and glory most specifically present, most explicitly promised, specifically in good newsing? That is, you want to bet on where the authority of Christ will rest and where Jesus will be with you no matter what humiliation or pain or suffering or death you might suffer? It is in that moment. But here's here's the second thing. The second thing is— that that's no big deal, compared to the fact that your name either is or could be written in heaven. The good news is is that if you are already a Christian and you have believed in Jesus and you have come to him as a sinner and He has made you a saint, and you are trusting in Him for your righteousness, in Him for your justice, in him for all those things, listen, how well you perform evangelistically is not an issue. You don't have to feel humiliated by Jesus, and you don't have to feel ashamed by Jesus. Jesus took on himself in the cross your evangelistic failures and mine. I am an evangelistic failure. I go to India, and I am not brave. I have a couple little glimmers of it, and I think I'm a good missionary. Listen, I'm not. I'm not. I'm an ev- and listen, you are, are. I mean, I don't know you, but I, you know you're a human being, so I suspect you are an evangelistic failure. There might be some glimmers of good things that have happened, but you, you have been a coward and you have not cared enough and you have not been committed to this and you don't, you don't realize how great a thing it would be for that person's name to be written in heaven. And so, but listen, the cross paid for that. Be free of it. Be free of the humiliation of being an evangelistic failure. The cross paid for it. Be free to be a good newser and not crushed under the weight of being an evangelistic failure. Your name is written in heaven. Your performance in this does not legitimate you. It does not legitimate us. It does not create—doesn't show whether or not we believe strong enough. Be free of your failure. Jesus is your success. Your name is written in heaven. And if you have not believed in Jesus, let me just tell you, this is the sort of Lord of which we worship and trust in. The one who sends us out to his passion, and even when we fail miserably, he does not— Turn on us and hate us but he's gracious with us and he encourages us and he keeps us on mission and he even disciplines us when he has to but he says your name is written in heaven I am your success. Jesus, Jesus can be your righteousness. You don't have to come as an, you don't have to come as an advocate. You don't have to come as a great protester. You don't have to come as, you are not a gift to the world until you are a sinner before Jesus who has nothing to offer the world. You you will never be the reformer you want to be. You will never be the advocate you want to be. You will never be the protester or world changer you want to be until you recognize you have no capacity to change the world, you are a sinner in need of gracious salvation, and then to follow Jesus and to follow his purposes and to find that in his graciousness, he constantly uses failures whose names he has written in heaven for his glory. So believe in him. Right now. Just believe in him right now. Just say, Jesus. I want to believe in you right now. Because even though it's true, we have got to become this community together. We, friends, we have to be. We have to not just become a community for community's sake and not just for truth's sake, but we have to become a community for love's sake and for the love of those who have not yet experienced what it means to be part of the community of people whose names have been, names have been written in heaven. This has to happen, but it, will, it cannot happen out of pressure, and it cannot happen out of guilt, and it cannot happen out of fear, and it cannot happen out of pride. The good news is it only happens, it can only happen out of love and out of truth and out of believing the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us, your truthfulness in the gospel. Thank you that you are not a coercer, but you are the first sufferer before us and that um we need not be ashamed or humiliated of the call to be, the, to be made a new humanity to share your truth with all humanity. And um, help us to bear that humbly and joyfully and help us to rejoice in what it costs us and to believe the gospel when it intimidates us. And we pray that you would bless this work day, this Saturday. Help us to be on that day a glimmer of the community that we're meant to be, a witnessing, loving, authentic one. In Jesus' name, amen.